0: All right, hey everybody! Welcome back to the Row Hunting Resources podcast. And uh, wow, today is going to be interesting. It's already starting off interesting. So today's discussion, I've got a guest, and I'm really excited about talking with her because I think she's. It's going to be turkey related. Um. But goodness gracious, we've had some technical difficulties for the last forty minutes that we're going to try to work through. Literally right now, the only thing that I can do to get this recording to work is I've got the microphone in the studio set up. I have my phone on speaker. She's on the on on, on the phone. I'm sitting in the studio. We're gonna we're gonna see if this works. So the audio may not be as clean as what some of the other stuff might be. Maybe this will work just awesome. I don't know. But it's been a nightmare. But anyway. So here's what's going on. Um, If you have a turkey license in Kansas right now... So this is 2020. We're kind of wrapping... I'm hoping we're wrapping up this stupid COVID-19 crap. So if you've already purchased a turkey hunting license in Kansas for 2020, you most likely received an email from Kansas Parks and Wildlife talking about a research study going on that is... there. The researcher was looking to increase sample size and part of what she needs is body feathers from harvested birds to be sent in so she can do some genetic work and looking at hybridization and and we'll get into the details here in a second but regardless. That email came across my desk and it sounded awesome. It sounded really fascinating. So, of course, I immediately clicked the link and and signed up and got my stuff in there. And, And as soon as we can get back to hunting out here, I've got several other hunters that are going to be coming in. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we will be able to send in a bunch of different samples for her and her study. And I know, based on social media posts and the interest that this has Generated, I, I, I have to believe there's going to be a bunch of other people that have signed on it and will hopefully be sending in some feathers as well. But the thing that just really got me excited was as I started going through her information and, and kind of looking at who she was online, I did not realize that she is a fellow animal behavior junkie And she's looking at all sorts of interesting things. And just in the initial conversations that we've had, oh, oh, I think this is going to be a fun conversation. So, without further ado, Amanda, Amanda Beckman is the researcher down in Texas. Amanda, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your patience. This has absolutely been I have no idea what the heck is going on as far as a technology uh, standpoint, but goodness gracious. So I appreciate your graciousness and patience on and, and being able to come on today and, and chat. So yeah, sorry for all the, the, the craziness, but all right. You know, so I think, I think a lot
1: of people can relate to just kind of having to little with the
0: punches right now. Uh, I hope so. They better be. Um, because it is <laughs> it's what it is. <laughs> yeah, seriously, technology makes our life so e- just so incredibly awesome and easy a- until it doesn't. And uh, goodness gracious. So, regardless. All right. So, how about we start off at the beginning? How did you get involved? So, obviously, uh, you started your you know graduated high school and you decided to go to school for wildlife biology how did all that how did that how did you get into this and how did you get where you are right now up to this this particular study you're working on
1: yeah so i decided to do my degree in biology at florida state university and when i was a junior i was thinking about what i wanted to do next and what aspect of biology i was really interested in and When I thought about it, I thought that the most interesting part to me was watching animals and observing their behavior and trying to figure out what those behaviors meant in different contexts. Uh, So I guess as you would put it, an animal behavior junkie. So um, at Florida State, the two behavior options for me at the time were studying frogs or studying birds. And I'm terrified of frogs, so the decision... (laughs) The decision was made for me um, studying birds with Dr. Emily Duvall and her study species is a lance-tailed mannequin which is a small throng bird that and her study population is in Panama so these birds they perform these cooperative displays where the alpha and the beta male will do these complex leapfrog displays jumping over each other you can see videos of this on YouTube um, and the two males they are unrelated so uh, they they found that becoming a beta male um, slightly increased your chance of becoming an alpha male and inheriting that display site and eventually being able to breed uh, but it wasn't that wasn't always the case there was some variation in there. so my project looked um, at one possible reason so I looked at social behavior in juvenile males and how that influenced their ability to rise in status later and what differences among age groups were in social behavior. So I, I decided to do my PhD right after my bachelor's uh, with the help of Dr. Duvall and Carla Vanderbilt was the graduate student I was working with at the time. Uh, they helped me through the process of applying and contacting schools and I, uh, after interviewing here, I decided to, to come to Texas A&M. So thinking about what I was actually interested in the male behavior, trying to narrow down what I actually wanted to do for my dissertation, I thought that I, I'm really interested in social behavior and I still wanted to learn more about cooperation after doing the project with the mannequins. I really liked that study system and the questions you can ask. Uh, so the, the option for working with a cooperative species in North America. Are uh, wild turkeys? They're the only native bird that forms these cooperative coalitions. Um, in, uh, not in North America, sorry, in the United States. And so that's kind of how I, I ended up on turkeys. Uh, and nice. then from there, I I met with Dr. Leonard Leonard Brennan, who's down at A and M Kingsville, and we discussed and kind of came up with this feather project. So I I haven't done lab work before. This is my first. Uh, exposure to lab work is doing this project, so it's new to me, but it includes some of the skills that I wanted to learn in graduate school, so I'm excited to be working on it, and I'm excited to be able to contribute to wild turkey management and conservation with the results
0: of it. Nice, nice. Well, okay, so just understand this, okay, with me. This is literally, and folks that are listening to this, this is literally the longest conversation we've had so far because everything else has crashed up to this point. So we're we're in charted un, uncharted territory here. Um, <laughs> if if you anybody that knows me knows that you're, I'm gonna go down rabbit holes. All right, and we're we're just gonna we're just gonna dive off into the weeds every now and then when something strikes me as interesting. And so let's pause a minute and let's go back to your mannequins. Yeah. So you're talking about a cooperative display. So how big are these birds? Are we talking like robin size? Are we talking about wren size? How big are these birds?
1: Small. So I actually, I work, they're, they're small. They're smaller than a wren. Um, really? I've actually never, yeah, I've never seen them in person. I've never been to Panama. I worked on videos that they recorded I see. Uh, of their displays because their display sites are so consistent. They, they can set up a camera in front of that display site and... Some of their behaviors, they fly up in the tree canopy and you can't see that, but almost all their behaviors occur on this stick, that's their dance perch. So you can get almost everything just by
0: setting up a camera there. All right, so interesting. So what question popped immediately in my mind when you are saying this, so you're talking about a cooperation between an alpha male and a beta male. Is there ever any more than that or is it just two? It's just. It's just two in this species of mannequin. Okay. Um, other
1: species of mannequins have m- multiple variations of, of that, where you can have lots of helpers. But for this
0: species, it's only the one. Gotcha. Okay. So, do they always set up with an alpha and beta, or is it it, or can an alpha just display on his own, or does he need that beta to display with him?
1: He he needs that beta.
0: So um, really, in order to to get that female to accept and want to meet the there needs to be some aspect of the display that includes a beta um, so usually at the very end
1: the beta leaves and the last part of the display is only the alpha
0: but so um, the,
1: that beta needs to be there at the beginning
0: so it's almost i mean i don't know and I'm, I'm curious about your what interpretations they found but it's almost like the female needs to be able to see the dominance ability of the alpha she she needs to have a qualification it almost seems like she needs a qualification. Okay, I'm looking at you as as a uh, uh, potential mate, but are you a dominant bird or are you beta or are you a subordinate bird? And the only way she can determine that is if there's actually a subordinate bird that has become subordinate under him. Is is that a fair assessment? Yeah,
1: yeah, and and they also find that you know very rarely do betas actually mate with females, so um, that could be one. One key that females are using to pick a mate.
0: Yeah, so she she so she doesn't so she just doesn't trust his bravado. She needs to see it. Geo, you know, yeah, you you say you're dominant, but uh, I need to see verification. That okay? Because I can see. Yeah. But
1: when we're, yeah go when ahead. We're talking about dominance in this in this species, particularly. We're not talking about like spurring and fighting with each other. These birds, the their most aggressive move that I ever saw was kind of chasing one off a perch. Um, they're not, this isn't dominant. These displays, they're very intricate, and it, it kind of seems like a, if it's an alternative path, than you know, physical fighting um, is these
0: multimodal displays that they do. Have, did, were they ever able to do any age studies on them? Like, is it always an, is it an older bird that's more dominant, or does it, does it matter?
1: i i believe there's some variation in it i i'm not um up to date my my data set was from 2013 so i don't know exactly what what they're finding now what they've added to the study yeah Um, but yeah there it's it's an adult male they have an extended juvenile stage they don't reach their adult plumage until uh their fourth year so they have some time to mature and they, they do practice displays with these adult males so they they don't chase off other males um, from their territory they'll do these um, they're kind of different um, less enthusiasm put in it the, the, the display than if a female were there but
0: um, that, it's a
1: that's what that's what I looked at for my study where
0: those practice displays well okay uh, yeah this is okay this is a rabbit hole that's going to consume me um but uh maybe what i'll do is is we'll talk afterwards and and because i'm i'm just, that's just curious to me because if you're talking about a tiny little bird you normally don't think of a tiny little bird being long lived if you're talking about they don't get their adult plumage until year 4 like a bald eagle does you're talking about a, a tiny bird that is long lived
1: yeah they they live a while
0: and Wow, okay. All right. Yeah, we'll, we'll 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 shelve we'll just table this one because yeah, oh that's awesome. All right. Because I do see where and not to be a spoiler, but I can kind of see where your brain's going in in the second part of this discussion. Like I said, let's talk about the the feather part first, because that's what actually kicked me off and contacting you. But the the cooperative behavior on Rio Grande Turkeys, oh, I want to dive into some serious weeds there with you. So okay. Tell okay. Just give a give a well. You be as deep be be as detailed as you want to be. Give us an overview of this feather part of your study. What are you looking for, and where are you gathering samples from?
1: So we we last year I gathered. I focused my advertising efforts in Texas. Uh, so I from last year last spring. I mostly have feathers from Texas, I have some from Oklahoma, a few from Kansas, and a few from California, but after going into the literature, I realized that for the Rio Grande subspecies, no one had kind of gone back and really checked to see what what we did when we introduced these birds to the, the entirety of the western United States and Hawaii, so I, I got a little bit of money uh, to increase the uh, postage I can pay in for the genetic analysis this year, so I expanded the project uh, to the whole western United States and Hawaii, so I've been reaching out to states as, uh, as hunting seasons have been opening up this spring and trying to get feathers from as many places as possible.
0: Nice, so, so is Colorado part of that?
1: Yeah, Colorado um, included. Um, basically, I, I want to look at genetic differentiation across the whole Rio's range. So looking at in different regions, are, they, are we seeing genetic differences that are making turkeys in different regions significantly different than one another? And then also, we've moved turkeys um, in areas where there aren't habitat barriers to prevent hybridization with other subspecies. And you know, in some cases, that second subspecies was there naturally through their historic range, or is another subspecies that we've introduced outside their range in restoration efforts. So I also want to do a genetic quantification of exactly how much hybridization is happening.
0: Awesome, because that, okay, that that just answered. Uh, we kind of leapfrogged over one of my another question. We'll we'll circle back to it, but that. That that was one of my primary interests in getting a hold of you because I was curious if you look and I don't know have you spoken to any biologists in Colorado about this study much at all so far? Uh,
1: not not details about you know what is found where just okay. trying to get in contact with people.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, if you have if I think he's retired now. Uh, I think if I remember it's Rick Hoffman. Rick Hoffman used to be the turkey biologist for, uh, the Colorado back when there was division wildlife, it's parks and wildlife now, but Rick Hoffman used to be the, the turkey biologist. Um, and when I was at school at CSU, uh, when I first started, uh, shoot, that was probably mid, uh, um, 95, 96. Um, I sat and visited with him. Colorado is going to be a very interesting one for you. I hope I hope you get interest from Colorado, and and I know that there's a bunch of people that are in Colorado that are going to listen to this podcast. So if you received an email from Colorado Parks and Wildlife regarding the study about sending in feathers, or I I tell you what, what, you know, don't let me, Amanda, don't let me uh, finish this without allowing people to get your contact information and how they can send feathers to you because... The reason why I I say Colorado, and I can make the argument for Washington State as well, Eastern Washington State. In Colorado, uh, and I don't remember the years, but Colorado used to have a decent turkey population um, decades ago, and then all of a sudden they had a, whether it was avian influenza or they had a a disease outbreak that just wiped uh, the vast majority of birds out of Colorado. And really the only populations that were left were the isolated ones in Southwest, the Miriams' populations down in the Southwest part of the state. And if I remember correctly, the South Central part of the state were largely unaffected, but the vast majority part of the state just lost most of their birds. And so when we're back, this is, again, we're talking, if I remember right, it's like 70s or 80s, 1970s, 1980s. When they started to re- to bring turkeys back, there were biologists in the agency at the time that did not give two flips about whether they were bringing in a Rio or whether they were bringing in a Merriam's because according to them, quote, a turkey's a turkey and our and our hunters don't care, no one cares, it's just it's a wild turkey. We need to get wild turkeys from wherever we can get wild turkeys and we need to we need to, you know, do the transplants and and repopulation efforts and so they were getting birds from all over the place they were getting merriam's they were getting rio's they were just they were just trapping whatever birds that they could get and dumping them out and they did a great job i mean it was you know obviously you look at national wild turkey federation and all the efforts that they do for stocking birds and and you know kick-starting populations in certain areas well of course it was it was wildly successful but when i was talking with rick it finally after after it was you know hindsight's twenty twenty. After they went through that initial repopulation, so to speak, uh, effort, they all of a sudden realized, well, uh, we just mixed and matched birds, eight ways from Sunday, and so now if you are on the Front Range of Colorado, anywhere from Fort Collins, uh, Boulder, uh, Deckers, anywhere Salida or you know anywhere you know, uh, Rampart Range. Even down through, I would I would argue the wet mountains, and quite honestly, now even even the Trinidad area, Trinidad area, you have uh, the ability to have some good merriams there. But with the connectivity of the river bottoms from, you know, Kansas, you know, Southwest Kansas, Western Oklahoma, you could have birds coming in from uh, north the Panhandle of Texas. Heck, you could have mixing even in the northeast part of New Mexico. So it be I'm I'm very fascinated at at what you would end up finding with a good sample set of birds taken a, across the you know front range if not central par, port, even you know for the you know again you Colorado folks that are listening to this if you've got a turkey tag for unit 44 or 444 you know those are an interior mountain interior state bird they really have no reason. To have any genetic mixing whatsoever, however, is there genetic? Is the is it a pure genetic merriams or is it a hybrid? That would be fascinating to find out because the same thing goes true for Washington State. Washington State is one of the few states; it literally has three subspecies of birds. You've got the Rio merriams and Eastern. They actually relocated Easterns to. Yeah to the western side of Washington State. But if you look at the at the range of Rio Grands and Merriam's, it's literally... It, it's nothing more than... I think it's the Spokane River that cuts through, you know, the quote-unquote, well, south of this area, it's Rio's, or north of this area, it's Merriam's. Well, that is nothing. You know what I mean? Those birds could absolutely be mixing. Yeah. So... Then, yeah, and it's,
1: it's more of a question than... It gets more complicated than is it just a is it just a hybrid or is it a Rio or is it hybrid or is it a miriam? Uh, there's something called admixture which we can detect uh, depending on the type of genetic analysis that we do, where it, that it comes from hybrid individuals uh, breeding back into the population of those pure those pure subspecies or. the the result of those two subspecies that, you know, at one point were distinct lineages going and breeding with each other, um, freely. So, uh, and that can introduce new genetics, which can, you know, um, lead to altered physical traits. And that's, that's how we define subspecies purely right now. That's, that's the only definition is, is physical traits. Yeah. So if we start, if we start seeing hybridization, admixture, all this stuff, um, how, how long will those physical traits
0: be reliable. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, and okay. So, um, I know that you did a little digging on who I was and, and probably saw the websites that we've got. I don't know if, how much you got into row hunting resources website, but when I talk about some of the elk stuff that I've done, um, the, the number one thing that I talk about on, on anything I talk about is this, is what I call the so what factor. Who, seriously, who gives a shit? Who, who cares? Yeah. I mean, you know, there are some people, like for instance, I, I'll raise my hand. The vast majority of the people that come turkey hunt with me now that I'm managing this ground in northwest Kansas, most of the people that come here, they just want to have a wild turkey hunt. They want to come out. They want to have a great hunt. They want to see the you know the birds work decoys. They want to see the birds come to the calls. They want to see them strutting. They want to see them fighting. They They, they want the experience of a turkey hunt. They do not care what that bird actually is. Now, however, there is a segment of the population of turkey hunters that are absolutely interested in getting their Grand Slam, World Slam, right. you know, Royal S- whatever, to where they need to, quote-unquote, harvest a, quote-unquote, certain subspecies. And where I live right now in Kansas, according to the National Wild Turkey Federation, we are technically in the "quote unquote" Rio Grande area. However, I, I'm looking on my wall right now at birds, you know, the turkey fans and the and the, the mounts that I've got here, and the, and the piles of video. You literally can have three birds coming in, and I don't want to I don't want to jump ahead too far, but we, you can have multiple birds coming into a decoy spread, and one of them. Is really close to looking like what a uh, an eastern bird might look like. The middle one looks like your quintessential, you know, quote-unquote Rio Grande with a nice cream or buff colored, you know, tail tips and, and saddle feathers. And then the bird on the other side of him looks almost like it should be a pure Merriam's because he's almost just pure white. And that's just in the same flock, in the same group, coming into the same decoy set. So yeah,
1: yeah, and I've I've heard
0: stories of that you know from across across the western U.S. this year. Oh yeah, it's it's legit. And so, all right, part of okay. So you you touched on a little bit. I'm going to ask you again, kind of the the so what factor? Why does it matter? Because is are we looking at are 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 you looking at it from just the curiosity standpoint? In that, um, gee, it would be interesting to know exactly what we have out there. Or are you are you See, or is there a thought that, you know, whether we're talking about maybe hybrid vigor, you know, there's, there's that principle in wildlife biology that, you know, you, sometimes you have a hybridization between, you know, like this subspecies, maybe there are traits or maybe that animal is a little bit more fit on the landscape. It, they, they call it hybrid vigor. Is there, a, is there a, a interest in whether or not we're dealing with a hybrid vigor type of situation or are we looking at something different?
1: yeah i i'm not entirely sure and i this is why communication with the hunters and all these land managers is so important because i i just want to get information about you know quantitative information about what we what's out there right now and then and then i think those decisions need to be made because the, the restoration of the wild turkey is you know one of the most incredible and successful restorations that's happened um for, you know, any species in North America, in my opinion. And, you know, all that effort, if if all that effort was to preserve all of the subspecies of wild turkeys, then this is something that we need to be thinking about. If if that effort was just to preserve wild uh, turkeys as, as a whole, as just a species, then, you know, maybe this doesn't matter. But um, I feel like that's this a conversation that needs to happen. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah, No, you're, and and you're not alone in that. That's why it would be very interesting if you could ever track down Rick Hoffman. I, he, I think he would share some of your, the the exact same sentiments. I remember sitting in his office. uh, I was just out of the military. I wanted to go turkey hunting and I was, you know, young and in shape and I just didn't want to deal with people. And I told him, I said, where do you have your best birds and, and where can I get away from people the most? And he was like, this is where you go. And, And he, he told me where to go. Um, but we, re- I, I enjoyed sitting and talking with him because he was expressing these same things. Is yes, we did a phenomenal job at, at re-establishing viable populations of birds across. And again, in this case, we're talking about Colorado. We, Colorado, did a phenomenal job of just bringing wild turkeys back to the landscape in the state. But, one, I mean, once you, once you mix. Well, it's like trying to shove toothpaste back in the in the tube. You, you it's done. You, you, you've got mixing. Yeah, you Can't undo it. You, you can't undo it. And so that's kind of interesting. I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this in, in just the curiosity standpoint, but I cannot help, for the life of me, separate my. It, it's kind of like knowing a train wreck could end up happening. You're going to stand there and watch it. If you go through this study and you confirm what a lot of people believe and probably what a lot of people do be know, know, know to be true and you actually definitively prove that in vast areas we don't have pure strain subspecies anymore and we are in fact dealing with hybrids. Have you had a conversation with National Wild Turkey Federation? Has anybody talked to you? I mean, what is that going to do to their records program? Yeah,
1: I, <laughs> I <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. So they they do their, um, I think it's every five years. Um, no, every it's it's longer than that. They have their their symposium every every uh, so often, um, and the their most recent range map. Um, I have is from twenty fourteen. I have it on my website, and that's kind of
0: like yep.
1: framed where I've been kind of advertising. But um, no, yeah, they I've I've spoken to Gene Miller, who's uh, in charge of National Wild Turkey Federation here in Texas, and you know I've talked to people across the country. Um, but I haven't been approached from anybody at the at the national level um, about you know an updated range map or, or what's going on yet. But yeah, no, I would love to talk to them. Um, I, I think I would love to be a part of making a range map and, and updating this uh, if, if I can make it in time for the next meeting, I guess. I hope so. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I think providing the most updated information to people is is what's important. So then we're not relying on, on just their stories alert. You know, we're not saying that they're, do, they're not reliable. You know, I... I've seen pictures of fans of the birds that you know
0: people are calling in, and they look like three different birds. I'm not saying I don't believe people, but we need to get yeah uh,
1: some some actual information about what's happening at the genetic level out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, because I again, I just I for me, it won't affect me that badly. Um, just because, again, I, I have a I have a handful of people that come out to hunt with me that are absolutely um focused on getting their, you know, their slams and, and getting the different subspecies. But by and large, the vast majority of my hunters don't care. But there are a lot of people. I'm looking at that range map, you know, the distribution map right now. And I'm I'm looking at some of those areas and I'm like, golly, there are outfitters and there are um there are hunt organizers that if 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 the if the range map changes because of this and other studies there could be some people that might be a little grumpy about you. Why are you why are you ripping the lid off of Pandora's box? here? just shut up, man, and go away. Just let us believe what we want to believe and let us market what we want to market because otherwise they're going to be out of luck. They're going to be out of luck because they are squarely in an area where you know darn well we've got a lot of hybridization going on. Yeah, yeah,
1: no I like I said, I it's not, a, it's not a a decision, you know, I can make. It's not a decision purely sure. the hunters or the landowners alone can make. It's something that we have to come together and decide what once we have, you know, whatever results are found, what, what are we going to do with it, what our next steps should be.
0: Yeah, exactly. So how, how big of a sample, I mean, obviously, you know, let me just qualify it here. Obviously, the more the better. You know, sample size. The bigger right. the sample size you have, the better it is. At some point, though, if you're drinking from a fire hose, you just can't. I mean, what becomes overwhelming? How big of a sample size are you looking for right now?
1: But that's as many as I can get right now. So what what my what my strategy is is that. For, for these type of genetic comparisons that we want to do, your goal is to get 10, 10 samples per point of comparison. So if we wanted to compare counties in Colorado, we would need ten samples per county in Colorado. If we wanted to do ecoregion level, then it's ten per ecoregion. So the strategy I have and you know, this is it's because of, you know, the relative uncertainty of I guess the virus this year, but also, you know, do, are people actually going to get a bird?
0: You
1: know, so yeah. to get as many as I can. And then once we get everything back, we'll see what level we can do comparisons at. Um, and maybe we'll do um, some state by state. You know, I, I've gotten um, a ton of interest from South Dakota. Um, so, you know, if, if we can do county level at some states, but then others we can't, um, and they'll just have to look at the range wide um, type of estimate. You know, we'll we'll see what we get, but um, I'm happy to just feathers aren't that big, so stuff that I don't use right now, they're perfectly safe sitting in a freezer, and they don't take up that much room. And yeah, you know, I can keep applying for money. Uh, I can keep uh, asking and getting more feathers, and you know, one day either me or you know someone else, you know, wants some of that information. You know, that's that's the beauty of collaboration in science.
0: Absolutely. So, is this just? Are you doing this all yourself? You're going to be running all the. I mean, are you working on this essentially by yourself, or are there other people that are involved with you, and you're just heading this up?
1: Right. So I'm. I'm. Uh, it's called a self-funded graduate student. So I came into ANM. I get my salary to, to live off of through teaching, and that's guaranteed. But my research money has been all money that I, I put together myself that I apply for grants for. Um, so uh, I, I am leading this. I'm the one doing, getting the money. I'm the one uh, doing all the genetic analysis. I'm, I'm the one on the email. I've been getting a ton of emails lately, which is awesome. i been spending a lot of time on there. Um, so yeah, so it's all me. Oh, like yeah, I mentioned... I um, earlier, actually it might have been in a different version of this, I don't remember, um, working with Dr. Leonard Brennan at Texas A&M Kingsville. He was, he was the one where we met together and we kind of came up with this project. So he helped um, kick off the conceptual design. He's on my, on my PhD committee, so he's providing continual guidance about, um, you know, kind of study design aspects and helped kick it, kick it off last year, uh, which was awesome.
0: Yeah, nice. But yeah, it's mostly me out here. Jeez, oh, Pete, um, I, I kudos to. Well, first of all, kudos to you. Um, that's incredible because I, I know what that involves. I, when I got out of, when I finished up my bachelor's degree. Long story short, um, I let's just say I did not do well on my testing. <laughs> so, so there, there weren't a lot of graduate programs looking at Chris Rowe. They were like, mm, yeah, okay, buddy. Um, however, Texas A&M, um, well, yeah, there was a study that came up. I was, I was getting ready to head down there and then the study fell through the money. Just that, it just the whole thing crashed. And yeah, I kind of got sideways with one of the guys down there because, or one of the professors down there. Cause he was like, oh, well, don't worry, just come. And and we'll figure it out. We'll get the money. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, just just come on down, get enrolled in school, get everything going, and then then we'll figure something out. And I'm like, I'm work. okay, I just got out of the military, so I've got the Army College Fund GI Bill working. I've got three jobs that I'm, I'm working now to pay for the existing schooling that I just did. And I'm maxed out on student loans. There's no way that I can just pack up everything and just go down, and just say, "Ah, let's just see." So, I mean, that's it. That's it. Uh, so, I did yeah, not. I a, I did I not. W- I
1: would not recommend doing it if you didn't. The, the guarantee is that I have a
0: stipend that I can live off of by teaching. Yeah. I, I wouldn't recommend.
1: I wouldn't recommend going that far.
0: But. Um, yeah, so I I did yeah. not. I, I, yeah, so I, I didn't. I I was like, dude, I can't do it. And he, oh, he was pissed. I mean, he was just livid. I'm like, but dude, the project. There's no money. He's like, well, we'll find something. I'm like, I can't, I, I can't sign on the dotted line and 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 sign up for you know the first semester of school at how many tens of thousands of dollars per semester or whatever it was, or and then on a, I just couldn't do it. And I was like, dude, I'm sorry, I'm not coming. And. So kudos to you on, I mean, because that's, that's huge, because this is not cheap. And I, and people that are listening to this have to realize, research like this is not cheap. So, yeah, so okay, let, let's talk about that a little bit. How are you getting your grant money? How are you getting money to fund this? So, uh, like I mentioned,
1: so Dr. Brennan um, provided the funds to, to get it kicked off last year, um, and we're working... Uh, together for getting the money for the genetics portion, I I received one grant from my program, the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Program. They have uh, an an early research grant that I was awarded last summer, so that was another couple thousand dollars. But what what I've been working on and applying to a lot of grants for, and and you know trying to pull some money together for it is trying to increase the type of genetic analysis that we do so we can do for relative you know we're talking relative here um low cost uh you can just look at you know small portions of the the genome and just compare these small little portions where you know that some variation is going to exist on the other hand what's become more prevalent in biology as a field because it provides so much more information is using the whole genome of the organism or, or most most of the genome. And, and with that type of information, you can get much more fine-scale resolution on, on what type of comparisons you can do um, and an exact quantificat- quantification of differences. But then also, uh, these sequences, you they get uploaded to databases. Uh, so from, from now on, you know, we can build these databases of wild turkey genomic data sets. And, you know, as time goes on, more and more people are donating, you know, quote-unquote donating to this this database. And, you know,
0: even larger scale questions can start being asked. Yeah, so, so you're, so you're basically... a little bit more, yeah. You're basically building Ancestry.com for wildlife. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well interesting um yeah because yeah it's not cheap so okay just one other thing I just realized on my notes okay so let's 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 take one step back oh, I, I want to give you an opportunity here in a second to, to tell folks on how they can help um, if if someone is listening to this now and has the ability to, to donate or is interested in donating even if it's a little bit or maybe it's a a local chapter of an NWTF or conservation group that listens to this and says, man, that sounds interesting. We want to go ahead and, um, well, let's just do it. Let's just do it right now. How, how can folks, if they're listening to this and they want to contribute financially to it to help you dive in? Because you're absolutely right. I mean, you can either just scratch and sniff the surface, so to speak, or you can slice it open and really look. I, I, I agree with you. If you're going to do it, do it. You know what I mean? If you have the money to do it, you're already going to be in there you know, looking at this stuff. Once you start the initial setup process, it's a lot easier just to keep the ball rolling than it is to just you know, do a little bit of initial scratch of the surface, stop the whole thing, and then start it up again at a different level. It'd, just be, it'd be awesome just to dive right in. So how can people, if they're listening to this and they want to contribute, to it, whether it's individuals or whether we're talking about agencies, whether we're talking about organizations, businesses even, because you are, because because you have it now. Well, I guess there is a question: Is there a nonprofit that they can utilize through this to so it, it could be a tax write off?
1: Yeah, so I I can basically through Texas A and M. There's two options really. So there's um, if you if you would like to directly donate, I can I can get a link set up through Texas A and M. Um, and it would it would be like essentially like a GoFundMe where you yeah. can donate directly, and then that money goes directly towards um, this research. Um, and then also the second option is kind of interesting and something I didn't expect uh, to do and to get to try to get money for my research for is uh, Norte Hunters in Cordoba, Argentina. Uh, they are a high volume dove wing shooting lodge and they donated some hunting packages uh to auction off in a silent auction so nice uh something something to do you know something to look forward to and something to to bid on and think about um while we're stuck at home for now um the we're setting the start date is a a year redeemable from whenever the restrictions end so um Trying to make it safe for everybody, but also you know have something to look forward to. So the uh, six hunters per package. uh, It's going to be redeemable for six hunters for six hunts and three nights at their lodge. Um, And I'll post some more information about this to my website. Uh, The the virus has gotten this getting this started and getting this set up on a silent auction website has been um quite difficult, but. Um, we're working on that, and I'll share some information with you and post on my
0: website as well once, once we get this up and rolling. Nice, because, yeah, your website, by the way, is amandatalksturkey.org, right? Right. Okay, Amanda, A-M-A-N-D-A, talks as in T-A-L-K-S, turkey. amandatalksturkey, all one word, .org. And you've got some good info. I mean, you did a good job at just giving people the broad strokes of what you're doing and and how it's it's going. Um, So, yeah, if you can put that information on there, I know for a fact, I mean, I'm literally thinking of individuals right now. I know for a fact individuals that are going to be listening to this podcast, friends of mine, that do go on those types of hunts or that would be interested. So, gentlemen, ladies. Uh, check it out. Uh, maybe this would be a really good way to go on a fun hunt, and then the money goes for a really cool curiosity project. I mean, because that's a, 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 until we can. It, I mean, it, okay, uh, and, I, and let me let me re, let me rephrase that. There are going to be some people that look at this at, as a curiosity project, nothing more, nothing less. It's just a curiosity project, um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but. I am kind of curious as well if you could do a deep dive on the genetics and look at, and, and this may be completely out of the scope of what you can do just on time and money. But if it would be it'd be curious to me to see if you were able to do the deep dive on the genetics and really pick it apart, if someday. You could sit and go through the data and see if certain genetic combinations, if you will, seem to perform better on the landscape than, say, other genetic Mm -hmm. combinations. Is there any benefit to a hybrid, you know, kind of a hybrid vigor type of deal, or is it completely irrelevant, or did it just simply muddy the water? I don't know. Um, but if the more finely dissected, you can make the genetic analysis. I think, again, more data is sometimes better than, or a lot of times better than less data. Even if you don't know what you're going to do with all the data at the time, at least you have the data and you can have someone parse through it later on, um, It would be, I'm very, I'm very, I am very curious whether or not we have a situation where you could, you could make the argument that some of these hybridizations are actually doing better than possibly what pure strains would have done in the landscape or vice versa. Are the, you know, because yeah. there's the argument made, well, no, a you know, in Colorado. I remember one of the conversations that we had was, you know, there were some people are saying, no, 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 we don't want to mix Merriams with Rios because, you know, the Merriams are the ones that are adapted to this environment and this climate and the habitats. And if we mix them, then they're just going to be constantly, you know, winking out because they're not going to be as robust. Mm, okay. Well, are they or are they not? This might be a way to, to dig into that and see exactly what, what transpires. So, Cool. No, I, I'm dead serious. Um, I'm glad to hear you've got some interest from South Dakota because there's a lot of birds that get taken in South Dakota. Um, how about Nebraska? Uh, we,
1: I do have Nebraska. Yeah. Um, so I, I have some in California. I have origin. Um, I've been trying to, Idaho has been, more difficult for me but from what i've heard um from the national wild turkey federation they seem they they think that i would be an interesting one to look at their their public records aren't or their hunting records aren't public records so um,
0: i wasn't able i wasn't able to contact them like how how i was able to contact you Um, gotcha Well, then, then it's, then it's good. Okay. Then, then I'm, I'll try to make sure that I promote this and, and anybody that's listening to this. and, And if you are in the Idaho area, Washington state area, if you are interested in, in contributing to this, I would absolutely tell you to reach out to Amanda through her website. Uh, because yeah, I, you know, Idaho would be very interesting. Washington State, especially eastern Washington State, with just the overlap between the Rios and Merriam's up there, that would be very interesting to see.
1: Um, yeah, and then kind of on the other side of the spectrum, Hawaii um, yes. is, is very interesting because from, from what's published, it's only Rios there, but people have told me that they've seen birds that don't look like Rios and that there might have been some translocations, the private lands. Um, so, you know, who knows what's happening in Hawaii also. So I, uh, I, I have a few contacts over there of guides who are going to get me some birds and some people who said that they had traveled there prior to travel restrictions starting.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there's always going to be a little bit of generic, genetic variation in critters. There's going to be some that are have you know, from a tail, let's just talk about tail fan color. You know, you're going to have some birds and I that might be a little bit lighter colored, you know, for a Rio, maybe it's a little lighter colored, maybe it's a little darker colored, but um, there's always going to be genetic variation, but you're absolutely right. There's some, there's some of these are just grotesquely different, even within the same group. Um, And by the way, I'm just going to go ahead and offer my assistance. If, if you get a bunch of money and uh, you need someone to travel to Hawaii to get you more samples, I absolutely am willing to uh, volunteer to make that trip for you. So um, that that's something I can do. That that's something I can do. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to go trap some turkeys in Hawaii too. Trust me. Well, would that be a work trip or what? What what do you got to do? Oh, I've got, I'm sorry, honey. I I've got to go to Hawaii. What? Yeah, I got to go trap some turkeys. I'm sorry. It's just gonna be a it's gonna be a work trip. That that's all that's gonna be. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That'd be that'd be rough. That'd be rough. Awesome. All right. Well. Cool. So yeah. Uh, let and I I want to unless you unless you want to talk some you know some more on on the feather study. Uh
1: I, just one one last thing that I'm also looking for. Um, if people have some mounted birds or have some fans that they've saved and they're willing to part with some feathers. Um, you know, the amount up to your choice, location up to your choice. You know, I don't want to destroy anybody's um, hard work, but if you'd be willing to donate from some of those older older samples, that's a that's a whole other side of the story. We can start looking at is what what did it used to look like, and what does it look like now? And then then we can start asking
0: the questions about what what future distributions may look like. So. D- it- and this is my this is my ignorance talking right now sorry we got to, somebody else is trying to make a call in um if my this is my ignorance right now does the or or would the tanning process the taxidermy process I'm looking at some of my fans right now which I've dried out with salt and borax do those not contaminate the genetic uh, material or is that still going to be okay
1: yeah so it's you know, the same thing um, as getting, you know, almost the same thing as getting genetic samples from feathers from museum specimens, which is, there's established protocols for, you know, it's slightly different because
0: we're talking about taxidermy, but gotcha. the slightly different process
1: from, from what I've gathered, I don't, I don't know exactly how, how different they are in the terms of chemicals and the exact method, but um, yeah, so the, the tip of the feather um, the calamus—that's um, where the DNA is. So, the the feather itself, the long part with the barbs, that that doesn't have any DNA in it. But when that feather was growing, when it was a pin feather, there was blood circulating um, through the, the the main part of the feather. So when the when it stops growing, a little bit of DNA is retained in that bottom part. And since it has that thick keratin um, coating on it. How how you treat you know the skin or you know how whatever shaving um, okay. doesn't influence it's not yeah it's not on the outside so when I extract the DNA we dissolve the keratin and then get the DNA from inside
0: there yeah I I, I kind of figured it and that's a great point so when folks are when folks are wanting to prevent you know, sorry send you provide you samples to if you want to send in feathers you need to pluck those feathers don't cut them. You need, you need right. to pluck them because you want the entire quill, especially the part that's in the body, the, the very tip of that quill needs to be intact. Yeah, I, I knew that's where the, the genetic material was, it was, but I just didn't know if, if formaldehyde or anything like that would end up messing up or salt or any other chemi- chemical that is being used for the tanning process, whether that would end up um, harming that Genetic material or not, so interesting, but yeah, yeah no, they, they,
1: they can get DNA from like tissue from toe pads of birds from museum specimens. So, um, being in that feather, is,
0: it's even more contained. Nice, right on. All right, so Amanda talks turkey.org, get a hold of her. Um, I think everybody should just, I mean, if you're going to shoot a bird, why not take, cause you're looking for breast feathers, right? You're not looking for the, the saddle feathers and in, in part of the mount. You're looking for even just breast feathers. Yes.
1: Right. And that's, and that's why we pick the breast feathers is because, and we're asking them from different parts of the breast. So you're not going to like rip a whole clump out. Um, so then if people did want to mount their bird, um, you know, I I think it would it minimizes whatever impact it would have the appearance
0: of that mouth. Yeah, so let's go through that. What are you recommending? How many feathers do, per bird do you need? And you know, are you you're talking about randomly selecting it across the breast area? Yeah, so I'm asking for about ten feathers
1: plucked from different parts of the breast, and they can they can be stored in an, an envelope or a Ziploc bag. Uh, the the important part is keeping. Uh, Feathers from separate birds in separate bags. We don't want to get feathers mixed up. Yeah. So uh, they can be stored just at room temperature. Um, if you're if you're out hunting, it, you don't need to pluck the feathers right after um, you get the kill. You just need to, if it's going to be in like a, a warm truck bed or something, the carcass, uh, try to get it before it sits in the truck bed all day. Um, but other than that, just room temperature is fine. And I have data cards. Um, If you contact me by email, which is on my website, um, I have data cards. And then there's a a form that's required by Texas Parks and Wildlife for the hunter to transfer the feathers to me. So I can email both those things to you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then I can also get, if you you would like, a postage paid envelope um, to mail the feathers back to me. I can provide that as well if you get in contact with me.
0: All right. Well, and that, okay. So two things just popped in my, my head there. Um, one. Yeah. So that's nice. So if, if there's an issue with certain States or, or with, especially Texas, you know, you're talking about you're in possession of Turkey feathers. If there's that, if you need to get that form, then that's, that's awesome. Then just, I guess, have her, can you download that off of your website or do you say you were going to email it to them? Um, I, I don't
1: have it on my website. Um, I can, I can work on that. Um, it's a good idea. Um, I've
0: just been emailing it as people have contacted me. If, just from a time management standpoint, maybe it would help save some of your time, you know, so you're not just responding to 18 million different, I hope you've got 18 million, um, (laughs) 18,000 different, you know, emails. If it was something that they could just click on the website and just download that and print it, that would be awesome and include that with it. Um, The other thing that I would say for those that are listening, okay, again, this costs money. Research costs money. And I know from my involvement with nonprofit organizations, if we're looking at sending out a survey, if we, you know, when I was on uh, Colorado Bow Hunters Association board or when I was involved with Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society, you know, when we sent out, you know, we want to get a survey of our membership or if we wanted to send out uh, a mailer or whatever. Well, not even a mailer, let's just Let's just stick with the survey. You know it's, it's just an unfortunate part of human behavior. The, the, the easier you make it for someone, the more participation that they'll give you. And so a lot of times you'll see these, these nonprofit organizations or Amanda, like you, where if you send out a, you know, self-addressed stamped envelope, so that way people, all they have to do is just shove a, uh, literally, they just pluck the feathers, shove them in the envelope with the paperwork and send them on their way, you'll get a bigger sample. You will. Just just because yeah. people are lazy. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm not mean that in a disrespectful way. I'm just saying people are lazy. And so the e- more easy that you make it for them, the more participation you'll get. However, folks need to realize you have to pay for those. You, you, Amanda, are paying for the postage. So that just whittles away. If If she's, okay, folks, if she's mailing out say a thousand envelopes or 10,000 envelopes that's 10,000 iterations of a postage Just it's not that hard folks seriously just look at the address get get this information from her don't make her send you a stamped envelope come on participate just get the information from her fill it just fill it out. Go get yourself a damn envelope. Go get yourself a damn stamp and put your own stamp. Just help her save that money so she can actually put it into the genetic work of this rather than burning through her, you know, the money that she's trying to get with with postage stuff. I mean, I understand that there's some people that they're just, they're going to want that self-addressed stamp envelope. Okay, whatever. But if you don't need that, come on, step up. Just get the information from her get the paperwork, fill it out, fill out your own damn envelope, put your own damn stamp on it and send it. Just help her save some time and money because it's just, that's, I, I know the logistics of what you're dealing with and it's a nightmare. I mean, I, I mean, it's a nightmare, so I, I don't envy you. That's why, again, I will absolutely shake your hand for taking this on the way you are taking it on and I, and I want to see it successful. I want to see a large data set come in from all over the place because this would absolutely be fascinating so people just need to have a little responsibility and and step up and pitch in and and help out and we all can like just pull together on it and see if we can't make it happen so all right if you (laughs) if if yeah no yeah it is i mean it's just that's just the truth okay so can do you do you mind can we uh start tip and tone down the little rabbit hole that we talked about when we first started about your behavioral research regarding Rio Grande turkeys. Sure. <laughs> awesome. All right. So, tell people what you are doing with that aspect of your research.
1: So, so like I, I mentioned earlier, this the the cooperative behavior of the the Rios was kind of what, what set me on this path towards studying turkeys. So, what, uh, the original, this was originally hypothesized by, uh, the paper was Watson Stokes. Watts was a, was a, a PhD student at the time. This was his dissertation work down at Welder Wildlife Refuge here in Texas. Um, and he proposed that the groups of, bro- uh, the groups of males that he saw strutting together, uh, were brothers. And they were cooperating, um by the subordinate males not not mating, but helping their brother obtain mates. And because of this, they were indirectly passing on more genes than if they were to be a solo male displaying, because there was a a tendency
0: for females to prefer larger coalitions. Oh, really? uh, Go ahead. No, I said, oh, really?
1: Yes, yeah, so...
0: Okay. um, Then... The twist
1: came by um, someone who, uh, I'm blanking on his first name right now, but Balf was his last name, uh, was a committee member of Watts, signed off on his dissertation, whatever, came back and published a paper saying that based off his simulations, it was statistically impossible for the groups of turkeys that Watts had observed to be brothers, based off of um, these different simulations of I guess, parameters set specifically towards those welder birds. So, fast forward um, to the early 2000s, Dr. Alan Krakauer, um, in California, he studied the birds at Hastings and, uh, and introduced uh, birds in California. And he confirmed using genetics that what Watts had said was correct, that brothers, it was, in fact, brothers. More, more than you would expect by chance, coalitions were made up of brothers, but we had a little bit of variation mixed in um, due to the breeding behavior of both males and females. So um, we have females that have the ability um, to store sperm and use it later or eject it. Um, it's a really complicated and fascinating area of, behavior and biology. So females could potentially have one clutch of eggs with multiple fathers. So you could introduce half brothers that way. Yeah. And then then we also have females that nest parasitize each other. So you know, if the females if those two females mated with the same male, then you have a half brother. But if they it mated it with different males, then now you have an unrelated male in that clutch as well. Yeah. So he, Dr. Krakauer, he didn't directly look at you know that mechanism of you know what happens when you have those unrelated individuals um, or half-related individuals. So that's kind of what what I wanted to look at was how how does their cooperation and and their behavior overall, just in other contexts, you know, just feeding and roosting, how is that influenced by the relatedness of individuals in those coalitions and then um there's a the whole other side of it with the parasite load but i don't
0: know if we want to stop there for now well yeah okay so all right now what you're talking about is for rio grand turkeys yes uh yeah so this
1: the, this research was all specifically about the
0: rios all right let's okay so let's just hold that thought for just a second and let me summarize for some of the people listening. So um, anybody that's watched some of my videos and again, I just put out a video on turkey shot placement for archery gear on the turkey module on the website and you can watch in that video and you can watch in a lot of videos Rio Grande turkeys when, when you sit up and you work them and you, they start coming into, and this is why I love hunting earlier in the season especially, you can watch those fly, those birds work together as a group. You'll have three, four, five toms all coming in together, strutting in together. Now, the one thing that I saw in my mind is I'm um, it's it's just like going, it's splintering right now. Um, so I'm hoping I'm going to stay on track and I don't forget the other things I I want to ask you. Um, the one thing that I saw on your website that I thought was interesting is the claim is. That this is only all right. Hold on a minute. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make some notes. You you can make some notes too if you want to. So let's see. Number one, uh, claim only Rios. That was an interesting thing that I thought of. Uh, the other one is the, that I want to touch on, and this is from a behavior standpoint too. So what you what you were alluding to here just a little bit ago was you can. At, one person was saying that they are brothers, and the definition of a brother could actually be the genetic brother. Like as in same male bred with, a, with you know, one male bred with one female and those eggs have the exact same genetic makeup and they are true pure brothers versus a hen that breeds with three males. So there's three half brothers in the same clutch. Okay, they are they have the same mother, so they're brothers, but they have different fathers, okay, so they're all half-brothers, but then, like you said, you could have the nest parasitism, where you could end end up having one hen breed with one tom, and another hen breed with a completely different tom, and those hens are not related, and so you could actually have a clutch of mixed genetics, but what we're, so the curiosity thing would be, for me, is are we looking at genetic brothers, or are we looking at and this is this is, for lack of a better term, familial brothers. They they were mm-hmm. they they hatched and were raised and and that brood was together. You know what I mean? I mean it, so yeah. um, so let's let's circle back. So the claim is, or maybe it's not the claim. You you clarify it. But is the claim or the belief that it's only real grand turkeys that are doing this? From from what
1: what I've read, these. These two studies were specifically looking at the, the breeding biology of Rio Grande turkeys. There, there were a couple other studies that were done in Oklahoma and Kansas looking at, is it really a lek or is it kind of like a modified lek? But this, this specific cooperative coalition strutting together on the lek, that, that is something that I've read that is a characteristic Rio trait.
0: Okay, because, you know, and this is where sometimes you just don't pay attention. But, yeah, I I noticed this behavior in Rios. I don't remember witnessing this behavior in the Merriams that I have hunted. And I do not remember this behavior in Well, I can't, hmm, I can't, maybe, maybe, I'm I'm thinking of a particular hunt that I did in upstate New York, Easterns, and multiple, multiple times, okay, multiple times, you know what, I may actually have to go pull video, so I do a lot of, like you say, you you went on, I think you looked up a lot of what I, or some of what I do, and I do a lot of video analysis, just sit, just burn, just film everything. And then you can sit back and you can go back through it and watch it and over and over. And you can start comparing and contrasting things over time. Now And, I, and, and we don't have to go in all the weeds. I, you know, I always talk about when you're, talking, when you're talking about behavioral research, it's tricky. It's very difficult to prove something to be. It's almost impossible to prove something to be. It's, it's, essentially what you're doing is, is you're trying, if you're doing it right, you're trying to disprove it. Um, You're trying to find evidence that tears a hypothesis apart rather than supports it. Um, So I'd have to pull this video and really watch it again, but I do have a couple, there's a couple of hunts that I can remember from upstate New York with turkeys, with, with, with Easterns, where multiple toms came in together. However... What I don't remember is whether or not they appeared or seemed to be working cooperatively because, and I say that as as an important caveat, because with Rios, you absolutely can watch birds working, you know, say on the surface, it'll, you know, and we can dive into some of what um, Dr. Chamberlain talks about here in a second. Um, On the surface, they look like two-year-old birds. Their spurs are not overly large. Their beards are not overly large. And they've got a full fan. They look like two-year-old birds. And they're running the landscape three, four, five birds. And what you and I had talked about in the beginning, just while we were getting stuff fired up, um, you know, and Dr. Jordan Peterson talks about this in other, like, with with chimpanzee uh, arrangements, where two chimpanzees that are... Half or three quarters as strong as the dominant chimpanzee still is 150. You know, it, it they're 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 stronger than the dominant. Working together, you're you have the ability to exert dominance when you alone could not. So if you have these two-year-old birds working together, they can absolutely steamroll into. Uh, a dominant bird with a, with a, uh, a group of hens, his little harem of hens. And you can watch those, those, that group come right in and just steamroll right through that dominant bird in that group and kick him out and just take control of the displaying in and around that harem. And so I always, and it's, 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 it's not refutable as far as it happening because it just, you can see it everywhere repeatedly Now here's the thing that I was curious about and I always thought that what I was seeing with rios was simply because of resources in the habitats rios that I was hunting lived in and so because the population was such where multiple birds are mixing and utilizing these river bottoms. There's so much of a, a population in the area that there is this artificial, I don't want to say artificial yeah, well, maybe not artificial. There is an inflated level of conflict and inter um, interspecific competition between males because there's so many males in the landscape that are all trying to breed. That it becomes a learned behavior that if we work together, we can breed better. However, what I've also seen, and you kind of alluded to is, is there, is this a, I guess let me just ask you, is this, do people think this is actually a genetic predisposition or is it a learned behavior? because I when I think back on my Merriams hunts and whether's and I can't even think even and this would be interesting to talk with Jay down in Mexico with Goulds quite honestly Goulds down there have the same large they're, they're river bottom oriented uh, they're still a mountain bird but they're they're really oriented across river bottoms in a lot of areas and they have a similar population structure but I don't remember, multiple birds coming in like rios do so yeah what is your what is what's the thought is it genetic predisposed? is it genetically predisposed for rios or is it a learned behavior for rios so so it's
1: so for something something to pass on for something to be selected on you know in this case we're talking about sexual selection what like females are picking you know there has to be a genetic component for, to that to be able to be a trait that's passed on. So you know whether whether co- cooperative coalitions is ubiquitous um, across the Rio landscape um, you know the exact form of lecking um, you know how we're going to define that maybe that's not ubiquitous um, across the landscape. um Maybe it's only in those populations that experience those those pressures that you're talking about. You know, I guess high resources isn't a, isn't a pressure, but per se, but you know, increased population density would be. But yeah, uh, across across their whole range, you know, it, it would be interesting to to find some type of way to quantify what people are seeing and being able to really nail down, you know, this is what this subspecies breeding system is, and, you know, talking to hunters is one way, um, possibly using some GPS data would be another way, but yeah, I I would love to explore that, that further.
0: Because, yeah, I mean, and the other thing we had touched on, too, about the idea of this, you know, Dr. Chamberlain talks about the exploded leck idea. Um, when I first heard it, I was like, no. I I, I just was like, okay. no, it doesn't make sense. Then, the more I listened to him, I was like, eh, okay, I can see where he's getting at. But then you would mentioned something a little, you know, when we first started talking about the harem defense strategy, so to speak, the or the idea that it's, it's more of a, a bird with a harem, which literally does more closely represent some of what I have witnessed on the landscape, what Appears to be again. I'm not saying it is, but it, what my interpretation of whether we're talking merriams, whether we're talking maybe not ghouls. I, I I've hunted ghouls a couple seasons, but I, I I don't have enough experience with ghouls to speak definitively about it. But merriams, I've hunted a lot.
1: Yeah, I don't think I don't think there's really anything published about ghouls either. There's very like reading, there, it's exact just breeding behavior.
0: Yeah, it's very little. Um, but when I watch merriams on the landscape. I understand what Dr. Chamberlain is talking about from the, from an idea of the exploded leck. However, when I watch my birds out here move across the landscape, it really does seem to be more closely related, in my opinion. This is just an opinion. It seems to be more closely resembling a harem and harem defense and harem... Establishment. So, in the winter, we'll have these large flocks. As the winter starts turning into spring, as the daylight starts to to increase, the you can watch those hen groups. Obviously, you'll have in in really good habitats of least rios. You will watch. You'll have a bachelor group of gobblers off on their own in one area. You'll have hens and juveniles in a, a winter flock in another area on their own. As the spring approaches those gobbler groups will start making their way over to the hen groups as spring progresses the hen groups start to break up and my understanding and everything that I've always been taught and read about was a lot of those hen groups are loose family groups so it might be uh, a grandmother with her daughter and their granddaughters you know so to speak in that hen flock it's 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 a mother and offspring, or it's, it's maybe it's two sisters that have hung together and their offspring. So you have a small, to eight, 10, 12, 15, whatever, 20, uh, hens in, in this small subset that has broken off of the main flock. They start moving away from the winter area, moving towards their spring. And, and I've, always attributed it to they're moving towards their nesting areas they're moving towards where they're finding better spring greenup. up they, they need that good spring green up they need that high protein feed as they're transitioning from their winter into the spring and in the summer they've got to have higher protein in their diet they start those hens break up they start moving away from the winter flock they start venturing out and gobblers are following with after those gobblers are going through the pecking order, they're beating each other up. They're splitting up. They're figuring out who's who. And then you see these assemblages of gobblers going with that group of hens. And then it seems like those gobblers are with those hens and will follow them wherever those hens go on the landscape. Because I can literally watch, and and I understand when people talk about, you know, strutting, you know, again, Easterns, you'll hear people talk all the time about strut zones and, you know, I need to find a strut zone where that gobbler is going to go and he's going to strut. Rios, at least in my world, along these linear corridors, that is not what happens. Because depending, yeah. because depending on which way the wind is blowing and depending on which way the, what so in, in my area, our agriculture is dry land agriculture. And we are in a, I mean, we get about 20 to 22 inches of precipitation or moisture a year maybe we'll get 24, you know, but 20 to 22. And so all the agriculture, most, 95 plus percent of the agriculture out here is all dry land farming. And so you would have a mix of, say, winter wheat, corn, soybeans, roughly, maybe some milo and sorghum mixed in. For proper agriculture to function out here, you have to let soil moisture recharge. And for weed control, you need to, it, weed and, and fertilizer and everything else, you need to rotate those crops around so you have a crop rotation. So this particular field, so let's let's imagine a, a, just a sheet of paper, okay? Your regular eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And you just draw a line vertical right through the middle of it. And on one side of the, uh, you know, on the left side of that line, maybe that field, and, and the line through the middle of your sheet of paper is the river bottom, okay? A tree corridor, cottonwoods, and all sorts of other stuff. On the left side of that, sheet of paper and and maybe and maybe let's talk maybe that sheet of paper represents four square miles you know what actually let's do that let's let's imagine us taking that sheet of paper and just putting an x right in the middle of it so you separate that piece of paper into four blocks and let's just say that actually let's just say that that sheet of paper is one square mile all right. So you have your northwest quarter section, you've got a northeast quarter section, you got a southwest quarter section, and you got a southeast quarter section. You, in our world, you have that river bottom running through the middle of the property. But maybe the northwest quarter section this year is winter wheat. Maybe the other uh, sections are in uh, soybean or they're in corn. Well, if that's the case, the only thing that's going to be green in the landscape, is that winter wheat. And so, if you look across our landscape, you will watch those birds break up out of their winter flocks, and they will go in the direction of the winter wheat, and the gobblers are going to follow. But uh, next year, they'll turn around, the winter wheat might be in a completely different field, guess what? The hens are going to go to where that winter wheat is, and the gobblers are going to follow. And out in our neck of the woods, it's windy. And so sometimes, just based on where the wind blows and how the wind blows, those hens will move off in a direction where they find more protected cover and the gobblers go with them. Out here, I don't see it as a, and, and maybe I'm wrong, and I, and I have put out a, an invite to Dr. Chamberlain. I, I'd love to, to sit and talk with him and explore this. I'm not seeing the idea of, a, of an exploded lek working... As well as an idea of gobblers defending a harem. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah. So first, lec has a specific definition for what we consider a lec breeding system. But Thank just you. as a quick aside, do you, do you know what like the, the defi- like
0: the translation of lec translates to? Well, it's a it's a. Uh, are you are you talking about the phonology of the word, or are you talking about just the de- yeah, yeah, uh, yeah phonology. maybe I don't go ahead.
1: It, so it tra- it's child's play, is what it. Uh, oh really? It means. so.
0: Really. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah no. Yeah, I, yeah
1: so um you know you think you think of these species as they're kind of free from the constraints of you know. Really harsh environmental conditions, or really constricted food resources, that they have the time uh, and energy to put on these displays. That, from you know a natural selection perspective, they're sitting in an open field, you know, not paying attention to predators per se. Um. So that that was kind of what i've read was the the difference between you know the what we see for the breeding behavior in rios versus easterns as rios they have these wide open landscapes that the resources aren't necessarily defendable because they're so spread out um and experience a much milder climate um at least i guess maybe in their historic range maybe now um
0: that's a fair point a little
1: bit chilly in their northern range now
0: that's a fair Um, point
1: yeah, but in what I, what from my understanding was the Easterns, they have a harem defense because males can defend a specific territory that has, you know, an
0: abundance of whatever local resources is important for those turkeys. Wait, 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 so, wait, 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 back up. Do you, are you, yeah. you said harem defense. Are you saying Easterns harem defense or are you talking about a Lex situation? I'm talking about
1: the harem.
0: Okay, okay, keep going then. All right.
1: Yeah, so uh, the le- lecking has a specific definition if we're going to define something. So, the, the classic definition of a leck, we can think about sage grouse. So, um, there's a spatial aggregation of displaying males that is uh, continuous through time. So, those, those display grounds for sage grouse, you know, those are genetically passed down. It, individuals will continuously come to those sites, and that's why. Um, conservation of sage grouse habitat has been um, really pushed um, these last few years. We also ha- include males providing no parental care. That's the second um, feature of the lek. The third is that the females are visiting the lek only to mate. So they're not coming to the lek to, to eat there. You know, they may they may eat there, but that's not their purpose for coming to the lek. So like the, the mannequins that i worked with they they had this exploded lek breeding system where the spatial aggregation of males was passed on through time but the males were not visible with one another like um the sage would be but the females are only visiting those display perches to see the males they're not coming there to eat or or to see other females they're they're coming to to visit that only to mate with that male or to, to sample males to mate with. And then the last um, death part of a definition of lek is that females are able to move freely um, among displayed territories to assess these males. So there's, there's no type of control on the male's part um, to, prevent, um, to physically prevent females from seeing other males, but they can move through these territories and sample as they want.
0: Yeah. See, and that's and and I don't want to. I mean, Dr. Chamberlain has has actually been on a couple podcasts lately, and he's talked about this. And so, I mean, he obviously he does a good job explaining his position. And I don't want to put words in his mouth. And I, again, I'd love to talk with him about it. But yeah, because um, I think he would make the argument that okay, well, it's an expl. What he's in my interpretation was he was just, he was saying that these the turkeys exhibit a exploded luck, and that from their GPS studies that they were showing that hens actually can and do go between these toms and and these assemblages. But everything that I was, my interpretation of what he was talking about, this is why I want to get clarification from him. My interpretation about what he was talking about was it was the gobblers that were going to these places, whether they were roosting in a spot that had better acoustics that allowed them to broadcast their voice a lot farther uh, so they could attract more hens or whatever across the landscape. Um, just, it just seemed like, oh, it just, and it's why I want to, it's why I want to talk with him about it because it just didn't seem to jive with the movement. Now, obviously I don't have marked birds on my properties. I don't. So I cannot tell you that, Okay, that group, that ten hens, t- uh, that roost site a, is a traditional roost site every year, and there's going to be there's going to be hens there, and guess what? There's going to be gobblers there as well. I cannot right now without GPS, I cannot tell you that those ten hens that roost there tonight on Monday are the same ten hens that roosted there Tuesday, that are the same ten hens that roosted there Wednesday, etc. But if you're going to look at 10 hens, there's 10 hens. What are the, the statistical chances that just, uh, it's always a group of 10, that they're randomized hens, they're new hens coming and going. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. If I've got a group of 10 hens and every day for three weeks, it's the same 10 hens in this roost spot and that work this particular area. And it's the same three gobblers that are in, now gobblers, and we can talk about the change in in gobbler activity from early season through later season. Once the hens start nesting and no longer coming back to the roost and, and the, the gobblers have, you know, start one by one, losing access to those, those ladies, okay, we can start talking about gobblers cruising and looking. We can talk about, you know, birds that are just, you know, maybe those two-year-olds that are just, rather than... I'm gonna I am gonna lean on they're collecting a harem rather than those two-year-old that group of three birds that that maybe they didn't get a harem they just their strategy they're just gonna cruise the landscape you've got different strategies on different birds but it just seems in my country it much closer it it mirrors what you would often describe as harem defense. Rather than a le- uh, it, whether it's exploded or otherwise, because if you look at elk, I mean, goodness gracious, I mean, it's an, almost a mirror image. That you know, you you watch how the bulls, as as the as the as the rut starts to progress, the bulls will make their way to the cow calf groups. The cow they start to intermingle. The cow calf groups will start. Of course, there's going to be fighting. There's going to be pecking orders and the whole the dominance interactions between the bulls and all that. Absolutely. You're going to have the same thing going on with cows. They're going to start to break up out of their little family groups and you're going to have groups of cows start moving off towards their calving areas and you're going to have bulls that follow them and and they're going to move across the landscape and I can see it from Arizona. I don't get whether we're talking Colorado You can watch them. They will use an area. They'll have a home range and they'll have a core area. Absolutely. Especially during the rut. You'll have this core range, but they will move through that core range. But it's the females that are dominating the decision on where they're going to go during the day based on where they're going to feed, where they're going to loaf for the day. And it's the gobblers or the the males that are following along with them. I don't know I, when when you when you mentioned that earlier and you you kind of raised that question of harem versus the exploded lack idea man it resonated because that's the one thing I've been trying to wrap my head at, head around with some of what Doctor Chamberlain has been talking about lately, lately because I'm just I under he's got an, an enormous amount of data sets on GPS uh, turkeys yeah. but I I I really want to explore the idea deeper I want to pick it I want to try to pick it apart not being an asshole, just that's what science is. Is Again, you can never, you can never prove something to be, all you can do is disprove it. And the more you try to pick something apart and fail, then more likely what your hypothesis might be true. But all it takes is one time, one data set, one thing to step in and go, nope, wrong. This is, this is incorrect. Well, now you've, you've got to re you've got to, you've got to revisit everything that that you've previously held either this one anomaly is is the wrong item or that anomaly that you just picked up on is actually the true item or it's a it's a component of the item and the entire previously held belief is slightly incorrect it doesn't have to you don't have to tear the entire thing apart but maybe a slight interpretation needs to be adjusted a little bit so that's why i mean i i am i I, i'm yeah, I was very interested in, and when you said that, I was like, okay, we, we need to talk about this a little bit. So <laughs> Yeah, and I, I grew up i grew up near Osceola, and so I don't have any
1: experience, you know, personally observing, you know, these behaviors in Eastern Turkey. So I just, you know, talk to people and hear what they say and, and go by what's published. And now, like you mentioned, Dr. Chamberlain, they have a ton, ton of GPS data on these Eastern birds. And, you know, maybe you know, they're working on the publication for that, that talks about that right now. Just, it was just something that I, I didn't know that they were, they were thinking things differently, um, which, which is fine, you know, like you were saying, you know, maybe our sampling before was incomplete and, you know, it was anomaly or, or there was some type of method error that prevented us from, from seeing more statistical error, you know, who knows, but um, yeah, I, I'm interested in, in hearing what he thinks about that, like what data they have to support, you know, those four parts of, of a lack.
0: Yeah. Cause, and, and that's where sample size again, you know, he, he taught and I did, I pulled since I, since, um, listening to those podcasts, I went and I just, I just, again, and the funny thing too, is for those that are listening. So last night. What what was it like eleven thirty last night? We're we're emailing back and forth. So she's a night owl too. I work at night. I my I'm I'm up I'm up late. So I have been these past couple of days just deep diving, just pulling in J just going through the journal. You know, just going through as many journal articles as I can, and just pulling up so much stuff that um, I, I really would. It, it'd be very interesting to see what the overall sample size is and replications are on this idea. Is it, is it from one or two? Is this idea coming from one or two studies where this actually seemed very plausible? Or is this something that he has seen across the landscape? And I I don't mean to be, this is not disrespectful. This is just, this is just critical minds looking critically at ideas. I know for a fact I am guilty of it as well. I'm going to put that qualification out there because every, there's a lot of people that, if you want to be critical on some of my behavioral stuff that I've done with elk and vocalizations, communication, behavior, uh, interpretations of vocalizations, I welcome it by all means. We we can have that conversation as long as it's coming from a critical analysis and, and a uh, you're 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 wanting to learn and and seek the truth rather than just knock someone down because they're getting a market share or they're getting, uh, you know, social media attention that you aren't. I, I don't care about that. Um, so when I look at some of what I hear Dr. Chamberlain talking about, I, I have questions. And I, are, is the data robust enough that it is difficult to pick apart his interpretation. Or did he get an interpretation of something and then he sees it everywhere else? And I don't mean that to be disrespectful, but it is easy for behavioral researchers to fall into that trap of seeing something, basically coming to a hypothesis or a conclusion, and then finding things that validate that. Does that make sense? Um, Yeah, yeah. And and I and I, I and it's just it's a it's a subconscious it's a subconscious bias that it's just something when you when you study animal
1: behavior, it's just something that you you learn about and it's something that you, you try to
0: be conscious of yourself. Yeah, it, it, it it's such an easy trap to fall into and on, on the elk stuff that I've done, I've had to go back and revisit some of the vis, the video the previous videos that I've done and, and I'm gonna be doing that this summer on some of the vocalizations. The more data you get and, and again, you can never prove something to be. All you can do is disprove it. The more data you get, all of a sudden you start picking up these little things that seem to be chipping away at your previously held idea. And you're like, well, shit, now I got it. What the... How does this fit? It, it, it Again, is this an anomaly that doesn't make sense that I'm interpreting wrong? Or did I interpret all of it wrong? And so you got to revisit it. So anyway, I don't want to belabor the point. I just... I appreciated the fact that what you said earlier when we were talking someone else was questioning that conclusion as well. And there are other theories out there on how birds have established their social structure and how they're working on the landscape. So no, that that's interesting. What, so what else from, from that behavioral? So how, okay. I know the feather part. So on your other work, how far into this are you, or are you just starting? Um, And, and what, what other studies are you basically? Where is this idea coming from, and what are you piggybacking it off of? Anything does that make sense? For, for which project, the the behavior, the 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 cooper the, the cooperation of of the males, you know the 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 brothers, so to speak. Those that cooperation you you wanted to look yeah. at that is that are you piggybacking off of previous research, or is this going to be a novel research that you just want to start diving into?
1: So, yeah, so the, it kind of back off that kind of story I was telling earlier with thinking it was brothers and then Dr. Krakower coming and confirming it, but he, he didn't do um, kind of the observations in the field of what, what the differences were. So he, brothers, true brothers are related. They share half half of their genes. So I think the, the average relatedness between males and coalitions that he observed it was like point four two. So he had a couple half brothers or unrelated individuals mixed in, um, but he didn't he didn't go through and look at the behavior and quantify like, okay, are there any differences between these coalitions that have the mixed relatedness? So it's it's
0: building off of that. Nice, and so. How are you going to, uh, is this going to be tied in with, with the feather stuff? How are you going to go ahead and start teasing some of this stuff out? How, what, what is your study going to be on it? How, what's your study design on it?
1: So this past spring, I, I followed around some birds um, at the East Foundation property in, in Port Mansfield um, just with wing tags and VHS telemetry, um, just recording behavior, recording, position, and um, following them around basically every day um, to, to get an initial idea. And I also took blood samples from all these individuals too. So I don't know the really – at the time, this is going back to biases in animal behavior. Um, at the time, I collected all this behavioral data – I have no idea who's related to who. So there is, I I don't have a way to subconsciously bias. Nice. But I know this group is related, so I'm sure somehow I'm measuring them differently, even though I don't mean to and I'm not
0: sure doing, sure. You
1: know, I'm not trying to purposely doing it, but as of right, and still, as of right now, I still don't know who, who's related to who. So um, we'll go back and look at that. And then kind of the other component that is kind of a new idea based off of, what I've read in turkey research is, is looking at parasite load and um, snood blanks. So uh, some papers papers by Richard Buholtz came out a while ago showing that the snood could be a, a marker for females to look at males and assess their health because he found that males that had less parasites, and he did this in experimentally infected groups and then also just looked at wild birds. Uh, Males that had lower parasite load had longer snoods. So um, I also am tying in this behavior um, and movement between groups, and we're going to look at the parasite presence and disease presence in these individuals, too, to see if relatedness and snood lengths. And their behavior, if that's all, kind of intertwined with one another.
0: Yeah, because that that I, if, again, just from a curiosity standpoint. So he okay. So before I dive into my thoughts, so he they were they were thinking that hens are queuing in off of snood length.
1: Right. So they they did. You can do a type of captive behavioral trial. It's called a choice trial. So you put a female in. put a male, put males, you can use real males or decoys on either side and then you you assess preference based off of the amount of time that the female spends on one side of the enclosure versus the other. So they did decoys and with live males that had variation, you know, varied the skull cap, varied snood lengths, looked at beard lengths, looked at spur lengths, and then looked to see what what females were preferring and they were what they were picking up on based off of their experiments was the snood.
0: Well that actually to me to me it actually kinda of makes sense and, and let me let me say why. Alright, so for those not overly familiar with turkeys on turkey anatomy names the snood is that little thing, that dangly little little thing that, that's over top. of So it starts at, or right over top of their basically their beak, the top of their beak, their, their nasal port, and then it, it kind of hangs down over the side of their beak. And if you watch, that snood will react to that bird. And it's always been, in my opinion, the, in my opinion, my opinion <laughs> is that snood movement, okay? So it can be very, very short or they can relax and, and fill it with blood and it will hang down and it can hang down a long way, all right? So it it is dynamic. It moves quite a bit. My opinion has always been that snood orientation is a key way of understanding what subconsciously, it's a subconscious indicator. No, wrong. It is an indicator of that bird's comfort level and disposition in a certain situation because it responds to sub or or subconscious cues in the bird. What do I mean? I don't think the bird is consciously saying, "Oh, I want a, I want a long snood now," or he's he, he's not saying consciously, "Oh, I want to shorten my snood up now." I think it's responding off of subconscious cues based off of relative, and maybe we maybe we say it as it, maybe we couch it under stress. It's a indicator of relative stress, or conversely. Relaxation or comfort. When you see a bird strutting and you watch him, you can watch him behaviorally. You can watch the body composition, his body posture positioning. If you watch close, you can watch when they kind of get in that zone, when they just yeah. settle in, you can watch that snoo just absolutely melt and you just, brr, it just stretches right out and it's just beautifully Long and just flat, it just it just drapes way down on his waddles. But you interject a slight noise, or some a, a, a coyote steps out in. It doesn't even have to be a coyote. A, a, a coyote steps out in the field, or another gobbler steps out in the field. Something all of a sudden subconsciously pulls his attention off of, or or snaps him out of that. You'll watch that snoo just just shorten right up. Shrink just shrink right up. And then if there is a stressor, maybe you made a sound in the blind, or maybe you you know, as you're moving your shotgun or whatever, he catches a little mo- motion, or in fact a bobcat does step on the field, or a more dominant bird steps on the and all of a sudden he starts to become a slight bit more agitated, you'll watch that snood just shrink up into a little nubbin sticking up on top of his head. And so if it is a if it truly is related to a subconscious comfort or stress indicator then it in my opinion it actually does make sense that number 1 parasite load could affect that if that bird is loaded with parasites and physiologically he is under stress from that parasite load i could see where snood length may not fall into that lower level of comfort where it, it, it maximizes length. And I actually could see where a hen might be keyed in on that because you might make the argument that snood length could also, and this is where I need to go. See, I've talked about white-headed birds versus red, white, and blue-headed birds and red-headed birds a lot. And my interpretation of a white-headed bird is that is the bird in that group that or in that group or that area that believes he doesn't have to be, but he believes he is the dominant bird. Because you can see that with jakes, even you can see that with a group of jakes, even when those jakes are in an area of a dominant mature bird. The group of jakes, you can see a white headed strutter or a white headed bird in there. And I've always held the belief that the white head indicates the bird that believes or is comfortable and believes that he's the dominant bird. If we're looking at snood length, you could make an argument that a bird that is dominant, that is the most dominant or the most reproductively fit would subconsciously, as a byproduct of that dominance, as a byproduct of that fitness, subconsciously would feel more relaxed, more comfortable on the landscape. And the snood would reflect that. So I could make the argument from a hypothesis standpoint that, yeah, okay. If a hen is queuing in off of the snood length, it could be because that might just be a good indicator of the mental state and general relative confidence and fitness of that bird, to where he's relaxed in that situation and not stressed. He's not stressed by parasites. He's not stressed by predators. He's not stressed by other you know males on the landscape. He believes he's just fine. He's comfortable, and the snood subconsciously reflects that. So,
1: right. And then a, kind of another layer there is that uh... a a layer of protection for the female, so if she knows that that, based off of his snoot, that you know he he may not have as many parasites as that other male that she saw earlier that day. You know she could be protecting herself from being infected
0: with what it is, depending on sure, you know whatever whatever that individual happens to have. Sure, or or the fact that if if a male is stressed, possibly again uh, this would have to, you'd have to start testing these things obviously rigorously, but. Or if, the, if a male is stressed under a parasite load, he's probably, again, this is my opinion, hypothetically, you could make the argument probably that if he's stressed under a parasite load, then he's going to be putting physical body resources into fighting that parasite load. And maybe he's not putting resources into sperm generation and sperm fitness to where a bird that's under a parasite load. Might not have as good and vigorous sperm and and viable sperm as a as a bird that's not under that stressor, and so she's choosing that because it again is a subconscious indicator of, well, he's got everything going for him, so all bets in, he's probably going to have good sperm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, it's
1: it's, it's uh, I think this is a really interesting component of you know, looking at female mate choice is a really interesting thing, and it's, I think he's been somewhat in the, the wide breadth of research that's been done on turkeys. He's been something that's been relatively um, untouched as far as research goes. You know, obviously, he's been looked at, like, about the, the choice trial that were done, but overall, I think a lot of work needs to be done, and, you know we, know, we know about nest site characteristics. We know about predation. You know, we know about habitat selection, but what do we know about how females are making those choices? And if we're translocating or introducing a population to a new location, how do we know that we're, we're putting males in that group that those females are going to want to pick?
0: Yeah. All right. So can, can I be ruthless for just a minute and, and, and cut us both apart real quick? Because I know darn well, there's going to be some people listening to this and be like, are you freaking kidding me? Dr. Chamberlain and these other guys have, this is all they've done for the past 20 years. They've done research across the United States. They've got all this GPS data. They've got all this data. These guys have more shit that they've forgotten about than a PhD student and a biologist who works in the private sector in a narrow, okay, and and you looked at my bio and all the prairie dog stuff that that I've done. So, and we could talk about that too. Um, so yeah, there is, there's going to be those people that absolutely can critically look at us in our discussion right now and be like, shut the frickin' hell up. You guys don't know what the hell you're talking about. You know what? You might be right. You might absolutely be right. But guess what? You can argue me. You can argue Amanda. Or you can argue the idea. You can argue the critical thinking. Maybe we're maybe we're flawed. Maybe, maybe we maybe we don't know what the hell we're talking about at all. But don't argue the fact that, well, these guys don't know. Okay, I don't, yeah, maybe I don't know, but I'm damn sure gonna ask some questions. You know what I mean? And that's a whole scientific process. That's what's beneficial about being able to have these conversations. So let me, and this is just from your opinion, because I don't know, I have no clue. I'm I'm just I'm throwing, Amanda, I'm throwing this at you. What is have okay have you listened to some of what Dr. Chamberlain was talking about as far as hen breeding selection and the fact that he was there's two things again this is what I want to really dive into with him. He was talking about hens wait until I'm paraphrasing hens will wait until they they have a a stable, gobbler dominance hierarchy. When there's a stable dominance hierarchy in the gobblers, then they feel more comfortable in breeding. If there is a disrupt a disruption in that hierarchy, somebody goes out there and puts a load full of sixes in the head of a dominant bird. And all of a sudden now that pecking order is just exploded. So where they all, here we go. The whole, you stir the whole pot, figure out who's dominant, who's number two, three, four. It, it all starts over again. Until that gobbler group reestablishes a stable pecking order, the hens generally hold off on breeding. Have you heard him talk about that? Have you have you come across that idea in other stuff?
1: Um, I I haven't listened to the podcast. I saw the, the Lexing was a post that I saw. I saw that he was the correct in podcast, with Correct. The National Turkey Federation. But I didn't listen to them yet, um, so no, I, I haven't heard him talk about that. Okay. Um, I, I would say like, you know, that could be possible. I, from what I saw this breeding season, I thought was weird based off of what I read. Um, it just seemed like there was some mismatch between the females and the males. Um, where, you know. Male, the females would all be there and staged, you know, fully down from the roof, waiting, and the males just go off like they're not fighting, um, but they're they're not. Yeah, it was just very odd. They would just leave. They wouldn't even strut. And then when uh, finally a, a, a larger group that I had that were untagged, they came in and started roosting with the females. Um, and on days where that that larger group wasn't there my males still wouldn't go and shred for the females and then regardless of my whole time down there i didn't see anybody breeding um so you know that could that could be what what i was seeing as well was um and again now we're talking about different subspecies sure um unless you know and who knows he he did specifically i guess talk in that post about mississippi
0: specifically. Well, he did, um, he, he, yeah, but he did say, he did research in Texas with Rios and some other stuff. He's done a lot of, and this is, again, this is why I want to, why I want to talk with him, because it'd be interesting to know exactly what subspecies he's talking about.
1: Right, yeah, so I, I wasn't sure when he was talking about that, like, how far he was generalizing, because I, what he said, I would agree with for Rios, but then he starts talking off, he starts the post off talking about Mississippi, so I, it's confusing
0: about where he's generalizing this too. based on based on the papers that i've read so far i think he's got some data in as far as rios and and I, and again that's why i was kind of curious oh, yeah, about yes yeah, yeah. so, so i was kind of curious if you had stumbled across any sort of overlap with the mannequins that you guys were looking at before because it may, to me that makes sense again you know your your uh, a hen needs to a, sh- a hen needs to understand the the social hierarchy of a gobbler Group just to make sure that she's going to breed with a fit individual. That makes sense to me. But the other part that he said that just absolutely baked my noodle, and I just i i need i, I i'm struggling to understand is that he said that the you, again you're going to have a dominance hierarchy within the hen flock. So you're going to have a dominant hen, number two, three, four, five down the line. He was saying that the dominant hen is the one that breeds first, and she starts laying first, and then when she is when she starts, that's when the other ones will start, as though the hens are queuing in off of dominance hierarchy in their group, and they will delay their own reproduction and egg laying based on the dominance of another individual. That, to me, from an evolutionary bi- from an evolutionary biology standpoint, absolutely makes no sense to me. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's interesting. I'll mm-hmm. we'll have to. And you, was that? Did he only talk about it in the podcast, or you said he
0: has papers on that too? See, I'm trying to find. That's what I'm trying to find the paper on. I have not. I have not found okay. the paper on that yet. And I'm. I'm. I don't know if I just haven't found it, or if they're still working on that. But he has talked about yeah, yeah. that. He has talked about that in another podcast. I haven't gotten okay. through. I have not gotten through the entire video with the National Wild Turkey Federation he did the other day. So I don't know if with uh, was it Brett? I don't know if if they touched on that. Towards the end of that video, I got to finish that up. But anyway, it just didn't yeah, make so sense to that, me.
1: It just, it, that it's teetering. I agree it it doesn't it doesn't seem to make much sense. It teeters on the idea of female mate choice copying, which is something that's prevalent in the mannequins.
0: Okay, so it's the idea go on.
1: That, yeah, so it's the idea that if you were a subordinate individual. Um, in, in the female hierarchy, um, you, you may be able to infer that individuals that are dominant to you are going to make good decisions about breeding. So in the mannequins, you'll have subordinate females observing in the background, you know, a female on the dance perch with males. And, and this happens in other species too. So the subordinate observes the dominant female, mate with this male and then say, okay, now I'm going to she made the right choice, I trust you know, obviously not exactly you know, animals aren't thinking like this, but yeah. you know, I, I trust that choice I'm going to breed with that male too so maybe, maybe it's teetering on the lines of female mate choice copying, but it's not mate choice copying, it's like female nesting copying that maybe the subordinates are under the assumption that the dominant individual knows the ideal time to start nesting and incubating so they'll go off of her decision
0: but, uh, but uh, yeah
1: that's getting a little hand-wavy and kind of like so, off, okay. Off okay
0: to the side of that okay <laughs> so that okay so that's kind of where that's why I wanted to start picking apart some other behavior research to see if you could find this thing this idea in other places because there is this general idea of conservation of characteristics you know uh, what is it called conservation of characteristics from an evolutionary standpoint and, and again I don't care if you this is not religious I'm just talking about from uh, from evolution and, and species species I could never say that word speciesization where things change over time and, and and there's modifications over time nature will tend to conserve those characteristics that work. I mean, there's a reason why you don't see three-fingered primate, or, you know, a primate out there that has, you know, eight fingers on one hand, or, you know, three fingers on one hand, other than if they've lost them. There's a reason why most primates have five fingers. Why? It works. And so there's a conservation of that characteristic across that spectrum. So nature will generally hang on to characteristics that work, and it'll start to deselect or dump those characteristics that don't. So... That's why I wanted to see if there was any research out there because of what you were talking about with the mannequins. I just was curious if you'd seen that somewhere else because the problem it's not a problem. M- my brain just takes it two steps further And I, and I don't again This I don't have the answer to this. if a, if a group of females is going to defer their reproductive su- their reproductive effort, let alone success, if they're going to defer their reproductive effort to a dominant individual, A, what happens if the dominant individual dies? Okay, do, do all of a sudden now, obviously they're going to reestablish their dominance hierarchy. And then that sub, the, the previously subordinate hen that was deferring just a moment ago is now the dominant hen is she just going to say, "Well, screw it. I don't have any better idea. I'm going to go ahead and breed," and then everybody follows her? Or what if you just, for lack of a better term, what if you to, what if you just have a reproductively stupid hen who's dominant and she doesn't make good decisions? And again, it sounds anthropomorphic. It, it seems like you're putting um, human characteristics onto an animal. But again, conservation of characteristics, behaviors, behavior. Animals that live in a social grouping have similar similar uh, behaviors and, and communication and and cues and everything else. You have different individuals. Even again, we can talk about Dr. Chamberlain talks about. There are some hens that are really really good nesters, and there's some hens that are just stupid as a box of rocks, and they just that's just how they are. It doesn't make sense to me that a subordinate female would defer her reproductive potential simply based on the performance of another individual that's above her. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but man, it just seems from a species that wants to put, to propagate and put its offspring on the landscape, you would not think that that would be an adaptive strategy. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's looking at, you know, Cognition and decision making, like that, it's a you know it's a difficult topic to research, um, but it's it's really interesting to figure out how these decisions are being made. Um, and and Dr. Duval, the the professor who does the mannequin stuff, her and the, her postdoc, they had a good meta-analysis recently published about um, female made choice copying, um, which I it's been a, a little bit since I've read it, but. Um, I can review that, and maybe it does talk about something more similar to the
0: turkey situation that um, Dr. Chamberlain was describing. Yeah, when when we're done, I'd love to get I'd like to get some contact information because I I would it'd, it'd be very interesting to pick that apart because I can see from a mate choice selection I can see where that makes sense where okay you you've been on the landscape longer you're more dominant oh you chose him well shit I mean because there's no cost. You know what I mean? There's there's really, yeah. there's no cost to, to defer individual choice. I'm still going to breed. But if I have the choice of breeding with a random guy, or I'm going to breed with somebody that the dominant female in my group has chosen, Yeah, okay. If she chose him, I, I trust her for figuring out where we're going to go feed. I trust her for figuring out where we're going to go roost. I trust her for you know letting me know that there's some danger there and we, and we ran away and we survived so I kind of trust her on certain certain things so if she picked him oh okay I'll pick him too because it might make sense but there but there's no cost from a reproductive stamp she's still gonna breed but if we're deferring breeding based on another individual that's fascinating to me so anyway cool yeah I yeah, I, yeah no so. And this, is, and this is one thing that I, you know, lately, so like you saw, um, when I, when we, gra- when I, well, my wife and I, uh, when we graduated college, uh, decided we were going to either go into either work for an agency or whatever. We had some experience working with agencies, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. We, we decided to go in the private sector. And my goal at the time, my focus was to get more into game, you know, game species, turkeys, deer, elk, blah, blah, blah. Well, like you saw, we, we ended up going down the road of black-tailed prairie dogs and, and short grass prairie species conservation stuff. And so we literally spent, hell, 10, 15 years just immersed in that world. And so all of this, and this is why I'm so fascinated about some of this stuff that we, you know, with the turkey stuff for the better part of, well, it was more than 10 years for the, for that amount of time, we were immersed in our world in blacktail prairie dogs, and it was a lot of behavior, and and conservation and, and mitigation and management work. Well, I wasn't keeping track of what people were doing with turkeys, you know. And so here you go, everything that I learned back then before I started, you know, working with prairie dogs. Hell, that's that's fifteen, almost twenty years ago now. And the amount of information that has come out because of the use of GPS collars, and and the amount of work that other people have been doing, goodness gracious! It's that that whole world has kind of passed me by. And now that I'm up here, I, I, I my Kelly, my wife, is still working in the world of prairie dogs, but um, to a limited extent, I'm, I'm I'm out of it. I'm I'm doing game management now. To where now I, it's like drinking from a fire hose, trying to catch up on everything yeah. that's been going on and. It's just absolutely fascinating because some of the things that are coming out and and some of the things that people are talking about absolutely now are, they've moved away from your general, quote unquote, population dynamics type stuff to behavior. And I've all, that's, that's how I got going. My my passion started with why are animals doing what they're doing? Why? Why, 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 why are they doing that? Why are they saying that? Why are they vocalizing this way? Why did they react this way? and, and from a private management standpoint, we always looked at it. I always looked at it as if I can understand why they're doing something, then I can better put a management recommendation or prescription on the ground that addresses, or at least plays to that behavior. And I can get some better success from it. So anyway, that, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me. And I want to have a hell of a lot more of these conversations. and, And it was just awesome when I like I said, I I wanted to reach out to you and just plug your feather study and then when I got online and started looking at the other things you were looking at, I'm like, oh, we're going to have a good conversation. (laughs) So, awesome. Awesome. Anything else you want to, you want to dive into or cover? I think, I think we've got everything. All right. Cool. All right. Well, then, uh, yeah, I will, I'll cut you loose. It's been about two hours, so I mean, I'm sure that people are, I I hope people enjoyed this. Um, I have, and I, I definitely number one would like to keep in touch with you as things progress with your study and see how things are going. Number two, I I will I'll send you another email, and maybe you can send me some contact information to your um, those folks that you previously worked with because it'd be kind of curious to hear some more on and just to, it's. I mean, obviously it's a non-game animal, but it's just a fascinating little critter that is doing some really cool behavior stuff. So I I'd, I'd be interested in that. Um, all right, well then, give everybody a, a chance to figure out where to go to you. What you know, we've plugged it already. Um, obviously, your website, amandatalksturkey.org, Yes. Yes. Okay, and they can find your email on there. Yep, it's right on, right on the home page. Excellent, excellent. And then, like we said in the beginning, she's doing that feather. Uh, the the genetic work on those feathers. So if you're listening to this and you harvest a bird this spring, go to the website, get in touch with her, get the form you know get the forms you need, work with her to get the samples to her because I think the more samples that she can get from a diverse area, I think the better. I'm dead serious, you guys that are listening in Colorado, in Idaho, in Washington State especially on the east east side with uh, the Rios Mar- I am very curious. and in Kansas in my neck of the woods up here I know for a fact we have to we have to have some mixing like major mixing going on so if you're in any of those areas by all means and, and other areas just get a hold of her and get some samples out there to her because this stuff just for no other reason it's just a curious. What the hell? Why not? Let's let's see what it looks like, and then and then, and then from a National Wild Turkey Federation, uh, records keeping standpoint, we'll we'll just let the chips fall where they may. After that, but uh, yeah, I think yeah, I, and, and I would be I would be happy to. Um,
1: I'll keep track of you know whatever, however I identify each sample, I'll make sure that is, that stays associated with, um, whatever hunter donated that. So once I publish nice. the information. I'd be happy to provide, I don't think I'll send out a blanket email telling everybody because maybe not everybody wants to now, um, but once once I publish um, and, it, you know, you see that on my website that those results are up, feel free to shoot me an email and I'd be happy to provide any information about the specific feathers that
0: you donated. Awesome. So it'd be very similar to the, the waterfowl banding. At least, you know, you, you kind of get an idea of your bird that you harvested, what's going on with it. Right, right. Exactly. Awesome. Amanda, thank you very much. I know we just chewed up a bunch of your... And, and again, I, I cannot thank you for your graciousness, uh, for having the patience in the beginning. I don't know what the heck is going on with some of those, but I hope this works. And folks, if you're listening to this, if it, the audio is probably not going to be perfect. Trust me, we tried. For 40, 40 <laughs> minutes in the beginning, we tried to get this. thing; It just nothing wanted to work. So we, we kind of spitballed and, and pulled this together. So... Thank you for listening in. Amanda, thank you very much for your time. Good luck with your study. Um, I wish you all the best, especially on fundraising and getting money for this uh, this this project. Folks, seriously, get online. Uh, touch base with her, especially on your auction. As you get going with that auction, Amanda, make sure that's really prominent on that website so people can find it, because I think it'd be very good if we could crowdsource the hell out of this. Um, And folks, I mean, this is going to be, real quick, um, I think this is going to end up being a very common theme in the future for wildlife research where a lot of it ends up, I think it needs to be, a lot of it needs to be crowdsourced and and people pitch in. If we just watch Kuyu as a company uh, just privately fund a gargantuan sheep uh, restocking effort, which is phenomenal, I think that needs to happen, so... I think it's beneficial for us to be able to pick and choose the projects we are interested in. You know, obviously we give our hunting dollars to the state and the state can absolutely dole out grant monies uh, through the agencies if they want to. Likewise, we give our money to organizations like National Wild Turkey Federation and others that they can dole out grants uh, to folks as they deem fit. But guess what? We have the ability to write a check and send money, or PayPal, or, you know, like you said, GoFundMe, whatever. We have the ability now to put money straight into the project, and I think that's a good thing. So, Amanda, by all means, good luck with that auction. Uh, get it on that website so people can see it, and then if you, I mean, just, yeah, people get a hold of her, support it, and uh, good luck. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. It was great talking to you. All right, we will cut this for now, and then uh, we'll stay in touch. Thank you, my friend.
1: All right, thank you. All right,
0: bye.